was the late 50s, early 60s, rather the Air Force and NACA at the time, the predecessor to NASA, that created a series of aircraft that would go very fast, the X-Series, all flown in the Yellow Valley, ultimately culminating in what still is the fastest manned flight in the X-15 back in the early 60s by Pete Knight. On October 3rd, 1967, Major William Pete Knight set the world aircraft speed record flying the X-15, a hypersonic rocket-powered aircraft. He flew at Mach 6.7, or 4,520 miles per hour. And as Eric Knutson mentioned, Pete Knight holds the record to this date. The need to go fast is part of our DNA. From the invention of the wheel to the invention of the hypersonic X-15, humans have been fascinated with moving faster. If you've driven a sports car, rode roller coasters, or plunged your bike down a steep hill, you know the exhilaration of an adrenaline rush. You know, human beings are kind of bound by perspective, right? When you're walking along the street, then somebody on a bicycle or in a car is fast. But when you look up in the sky and see something streaking across the sky, that kind of redefines what fast is. We see a lot of airliners go across the sky and we see private jets. Typically, the first time that someone sees a combat aircraft in full afterburner across the sky, it's pretty eye-opening. This is Atherton Carty, director of the Technologies Roadmaps Organization. Folks that have seen, for instance, the SR-71 at Mach 3 and 70,000 feet streaking across the sky faster than you've ever seen any other aircraft fly, it, it again redefines what the art of the possible is. Aircraft came into being because people realized speed was important, right? So you think about the way people conducted combat before, it was hand-to-hand, and then it was mounted, then it was mechanized. Each, each one of those generations, they had different things that tipped the balance one way or another. It was bows and arrows, and then it was and spears, and then it was single-shot guns, and then it was machine guns, and then it was artillery. All those conflicts were always confined to two-dimensional conflict. It was always fought on the surface of the globe, right? And they were always kind of were inherently limited by, by how quickly you could move from place to place. It didn't take very long for folks to recognize aviation as being really important for two things. One, if you could get up above everybody else, it made it hard for them to hit you. You could see them much better. And then if you could also add speed into the mix, you had a clear discriminator. Speed is an element, an element of surprise, whether it's with a weapon or a platform that is very, very difficult for our adversaries to counter. This is James Durrell. He leads the tactical systems portfolio. Speed, and especially hypersonic speed, is something that is hard to be detected. It gives our allied forces the element of surprise any place in the world in a very short amount of time. You know, the reason you want to be able to surprise the adversary is you want to create chaos in their system. By now, you probably recognize Renee Passman, Director of Integrated Systems here at the Skunk Works. Which doesn't tell you what I do, but that's a feature, not a bug, of my job title. Being able to go faster, you know, they don't know where you're going to be. 
or they don't know where you're going, and so they can't prepare, which means you can do more damage or take pictures when people aren't expecting it. So it's that not being predictable and being faster than, than they can account for that creates that element of surprise, which really creates chaos in the adversary, which then gives us opportunities to take advantage of that chaos and, and complete their mission. But Eric Knudsen's really the person to ask about hypersonics, not me. So let me uh, take a crack at that. Eric Knudsen, Director of, of Advanced Programs. So what's the possibilities of hypersonic to all humanity? The Amazon packages will arrive really fast. Although aircraft and flying, really its entirety fits within maybe two generations' lifetime. It's a very short period, but uh, a lot of it has been dedicated to speed. You go way back when they were simply doing balloons and they really, you're at the whims of the wind and they didn't go very fast, so it took a long time to go very far and you really knew, never knew where you were going to go. The need to get to a location quicker became paramount. Speed, in relative to high speed, really didn't come about until probably the latter part of the 50s. That isn't to say that we didn't understand things flying fast with various rockets and such. That's been going on for a long time. So hypersonic is defined as being more than five times the speed of sound. Mach numbers are how we de define speed. Our aircraft today, the F-22 flies greater than Mach 2. The F-35 flies, flies uh, higher than Mach 1. A hypersonic weapon is defined to be able to fly greater than Mach 5. And in many cases, we're much greater than Mach 5. Well, hypersonics is just kind of an artificial limit that we've placed. At this speed, you're going hypersonic. Below that, you're supersonic. Below that, you're subsonic. So it's just cases where speed really makes a difference. Now, speed and you know, oftentimes things that go faster or better I have a higher cost. So you have to weigh that against uh, what's the value uh, of having that speed. If I'm shipping things from a factory in Asia, the cost of going fast may not be a, a benefit. But if I'm trying to get medical supplies or there's a, you know, some national emergency in the United States or elsewhere, the ability to get resources to that location quickly mean the difference between life and death. It's always been a quest, but with speed comes some challenges. Uh, everything's a trade-off. So as you get going faster, other things start to happen. Uh, in the SR-71, we certainly found that out. Things start to get warm. Paint started to want to ablate away. In fact, it was warm enough that the SR pilots would warm their food tubes by sticking them up by the window, which had gotten quite warm by that time. So you have to find a way to deal with the problem of speed. As you go fast, the air gets like sandpaper. It starts to really dig in, warm up. There's friction. The air behaves differently at hypersonic speeds. Uh, you see much more aerothermal heating at hypersonic speeds. Those things don't all happen immediately at the same time like a flip of a switch, right? They start to manifest themselves as the aircraft moves faster and faster. So you might see some hypersonic effects at Mach 4, but other hypersonic effects only really start coming in at Mach 5 or Mach 6. And so 
it's a, a speed regime is the way that we typically describe it of typically Mach 4 or 5 and above. If we were in an aircraft and we were going to accelerate from a standstill to hypersonic speed, as we take off and we start flying all the way through subsonic speeds, Mother Nature gives us a real benefit, which is the disturbance that our aircraft is creating is essentially a sound wave. And so there's a, essentially a warning that can be propagated in front of the aircraft to tell all the aircraft molecules in front of the aircraft, hey, get out of the way. And so what happens is you find that air flows around an aircraft at subsonic speeds with some good design and engineering fairly well. But then once you start getting up to high subsonic speeds, the air in front of the vehicle, our vehicle, has less and less warning. And once you get to the speed of sound, it has no warning because the waves that were traveling upstream to warn the aircraft are the same speed as the aircraft. So there is no propagation. No, there is no warning. Those corrections, if you will, that Mother Nature applies come into play and things like shock waves start getting generated. Shock waves are these discontinuous waves that emanate from leading surfaces of aircraft and basically in front of the shock wave, the air is supersonic. And on the other side of the shock wave, in, in many cases, it's, well, certainly slower, but it, it's oftentimes subsonic depending on the type of shock wave, the angle of the shock wave, and that sort of thing. So the point is, as you speed up more and more, you start seeing these shock waves all over the aircraft. And what they're doing is they're allowing the air to continue to flow relatively smoothly over the aircraft, but it has to slow down when it does it. As you increase more and more in speed, these shock waves get stronger and stronger and stronger. The skin of the aircraft gets hotter and hotter. Uh, and, and so at some point, the heating itself becomes one of the main concerns. How do I manage that heat? Also, other things that change are the ways that um, you control the aircraft, how effective the control surfaces are on the aircraft, how effective that the wings are that hold the aircraft also change. And so as you move up in speed from very low speeds to very high speeds, it becomes much more tricky and you probably will use different strategies to control an aircraft at hypersonic speeds than you would certainly at, at subsonic speeds and even at supersonic speeds. So there's a lot of engineers that have spent a, a lifetime creating materials that can deal with the heat. Uh, on the X-15, the last flight, the one where Pete Knight set the record, where they covered the entire craft with a, an ablative material. At the same time, I believe they were testing a scramjet, kind of the early versions of can we create something that will give us propulsion. And essentially the ablative material flaked off, burnt up, and, and by the time they got back down, uh, the aircraft was no longer usable. And the scramjet, most of that melted too. So there's a lot of friction, a lot of heat, so you have to deal with that. The other element is you tend to want to climb up in altitude. So much like we saw with the British supersonic jet, they tend to want to go to a higher altitude. And at that higher altitude, now there's safety concerns for the folks on board. You have to be able to pressurize the cabin, if there's sudden depressurization, can you get to an altitude where you're not going to cause medical problems with the passengers on board? For the SR-71, those folks flew the airplane fully clothed in a full pressure suit. Just in case something happens, they lost pressurization, they wouldn't also lose in life.
Another aspect of managing heat and safety measures lies in the unexpected shape of hypersonic aircraft. So one of the things you'll notice about hypersonic aircraft that can make you scratch your head is you, you think, okay, a hypersonic aircraft like the space shuttle that's flying at 18,000 miles an hour or something like that is pretty chunky looking, right? It's got big curvatures on the leading edge. It's kind of blunt the way that it looks from a curvature standpoint. It's kind of bulky. It's a very utilitarian aircraft. It does its job amazingly well. One of the defining achievements, I think, of aerospace. So a space shuttle is far faster than any combat aircraft. But you look at the combat aircraft and they have pointy noses, right? And they have sharp leading edges. And you're, you say, okay, well, why, why do they have these sharp leading edges? And why does the space shuttle have this big bulbous nose and these big thick edges? And the answer is that, one, some of the places that it operates, there isn't much air at all. So it really only starts to matter towards the very beginning and the very end of its mission. But the other thing is that the air is behaving with a different set of rules, right? So it moves around shapes in a different way. It heats in, heats in a different way. The reason the space shuttle looks the way it does, it, it really wasn't driven nearly as much by uh, aerodynamics, if you will, as it was by trying to manage heating. And so the point is, Mother Nature gives us different sets of rules uh, to deal with. And that's why certain aircraft that operate in these different speed regimes look so differently. So there's a lot of things that have to be considered. In in some ways, it's not very difficult, right? It's a very simple equation if you approach things that way, which is, you know, make that much force going forward and to counter the force going backwards. And somehow we also have to generate enough lift to stay up. So it's a very simple equation. But in order to actually make that work, there is a number of things that have to be considered. First and foremost, obviously, propulsion. So engines. Jet engines work by making air go through them and combusting things. And so if that air is moving too fast, that doesn't work. Even the best, most well-designed turbine engine will not work at certain Mach speeds above roughly Mach 2-ish, 3-ish. If you want to go faster than that, you need a different propulsion system. And a lot of those types of propulsion systems, like the ramjet that the uh, SR-71 used, don't work well at very low Mach numbers, so then you have to somehow figure out how to make one work with the other. Accelerating aircraft to hypersonic speeds is very violent and requires many engineering feats. So what would it be like to take a ride in a hypersonic jet? So what would it feel like if I were to get in an aircraft and fly hypersonically? You know, you climb into a, a typical aircraft that would look different, sleeker, less draggy. You get into probably an aircraft that is smaller because it has to accommodate that lower drag. And it would have big engines and it would look uh, exciting. And I would get into the chair expecting that I'm going to be thrown back into the seat with all this thrust and I'm going to launch at a great angle of attack, go way up high and, and I'll see flames going by the window uh, and I'll lose weight and all these sort of things. But in reality, none of that happens. If you're flying along in a hypersonic aircraft, by and large, you really don't get the sense of the speed. You're at a higher altitude and the ground's far away, so it's not rushing past you. You take off and land at pretty much a conventional speed. 
and you don't pull great G's as you go into turns or as you climb out. This is not hypothetical, it's what we experienced, or at least the pilots experienced with things like the SR-71. While it has some monstrous and wonderful engines uh, that do put out some neat colored flames out the back, really it's fairly docile. Uh, once you get up to speed, you can't really feel that you're going, in that case, Mach 3 plus. And then as you come back down, air traffic control really wouldn't like it if we're coming in towards the airport at uh, some hypersonic speed. Uh, so they've got rules. Uh, when we fly, we get below a certain altitude, uh, we have to maintain a, a speed limit, if you will. So even though we may be in an aircraft that can go hypersonic, as we come in to land, uh, we have to follow the rules. And we're going as slow as everybody else is as we line up into LAX or Philadelphia or what have you. So really, not a big difference. Just a big throttle. Hypersonic speeds have been achieved, but today's hypersonic development isn't just about going fast. Typically what happens over time is it becomes an and kind of situation. So I want this aircraft to go fast and I want it to be low observable. I want this aircraft to go fast and I also want it to create a small sonic boom. Well, that's something that shouldn't go together, right? Because when aircraft go fast, they do create sonic booms. That's part of what we were talking about before, that a sonic boom is a very strong shockwave, is the way that Mother Nature makes everything kind of make sense from a, uh, from a physics standpoint. So you have to have the sonic boom. Asking it, an aircraft to go fast and not make a sonic boom, that's a new engineering problem. Very different engineering problem than just make the aircraft go fast. Very different engineering problem than make the aircraft go fast and be stealthy. I think that for an engineer, as they come into an aviation industry, uh, that's probably the thing that, that's most interesting. And, and it certainly isn't the engineer of today doing what the engineer in 1960 did of just making an aircraft go fast. It, it's making an aircraft go fast and all these other things. So the question that often gets asked is, well, wouldn't that be really loud inside of the aircraft? Won't that booming kind of keep me awake? For the pilot and for the passengers, you don't hear anything. The boom is simply projected out and down and up. Uh, and it's folks on the ground, they'd hear it. And that's probably one of the limitations that we've had in the past and why we don't have supersonic transports uh, is that boom. The concern of uh, what effects it has on the population below or on the wildlife, whether that's over land or over sea. And that's where we're working other exciting technologies that allow us to create something that flies very fast, but doesn't create that sonic boom on the ground. All these technologies are, have endless potential, what you could apply them to. But we're trying to get rid of things that are the hurdles or the gates that preclude us from going down those paths. If you talk to uh, the folks that have worked uh, the supersonic, quiet, business jet type technologies, if you could eliminate that sonic shock, that boom, then it becomes more acceptable to fly over land than the reality of getting between Los Angeles and New York in an hour or two becomes a reality. So, you know, it's just getting rid of the negativities uh, so that we can open up the opportunities. 
Hypersonic commercial transport could change the way the majority of the world perceives distance. Just as the first railways brought neighboring towns closer together, hypersonic travel could shorten the distance between countries. So I don't know that that we'll ever pursue it at this point in time, but things change. Let's say we decided that we wanted to make hypersonic transport. Okay. And maybe it's an outgrowth of the exciting quiet supersonic jet technology that we've got going on now. Uh, ultimately, we need to put passengers into an aircraft into a kind of a hostile environment. We're going to be going fast. We're going to be going high. We're going to be heating things up. But the folks inside want to be able to sit there and enjoy their sandwich and feel like nothing's going on, everything's happy. There, there's technologies that we need to be able to maintain the cabin pressure in, in that type of environment uh, where there's a large differential between what we need inside and what's going on outside. Can we make the ride smooth? If we're flying at a higher altitude, can we ensure that we're protecting uh, the people from you know, solar radiation being you know, not as much ozone protecting them? Can we create an aircraft that doesn't have a lot of drag at those velocities, but still allow the people to stand up uh, as they walk to their seat. So there's a lot of things that we have to compromise on when we uh, reach the limits uh, of capability, but there's some things that we can't compromise on. Safety is a big one. And if it was a commercial application, uh, you still have to have the customer, in this case, the passengers, having a desire to be in that condition. Uh, if I'm going to pay that much to go fast, uh, I'm going to expect that it's going to be comfortable. In combat, aircraft speed impacts survivability. Hypersonics would be a game changer for fighter pilots. For the military pilot, uh, some of the things that you'll hear them say are, uh, speed is life. And as a pilot myself, it, it, one of the things that you learn very quickly is altitude and speed are important. You don't want to give up either one of those. One analogy you could use to tie evolution of speed in air travel or air combat to biology is speed is kind of one of the ultimate advantages when you're talking about a predator so if you have an amazing animal like a cheetah, the whole persona of the cheetah is defined by this burst speed that this animal has. It's just amazing. And, and it, it is what makes it a very effective predator and lets it catch already very, very fast animals like, like gazelles and, and bring them down. In the same way, Air combat is a little bit of a predator kind of existence, right? If you're in an air combat situation, you're either a predator or you're the prey. And so I think that the perspective has always been speed, just like it is important for a cheetah to make sure it's the predator and not the prey, is also important for a fighter pilot to make sure he ends up the predator, not the prey. I mean, it also helps to have sharp teeth like the cheetah has. It also helps to have great weapons and sensors. But speed is one of those difference makers, if you will, that can give you an inherent advantage in a predatory environment. It's likened to maybe, uh, have you ever played air hockey? Uh, here you have a puck 
that sits on a bed of air and you try and shoot into each other's goal. And you quickly learn as you approach the table against your competitor that the harder and faster you get that puck going, the less they are apt to be able to block it. Okay? Because they can follow it as it goes along. So speed becomes important, but there's another attribute that becomes equally important. So imagine you're playing that ear hockey and your opponents become pretty good at watching where the puck's going no matter how fast you shoot it and they can block it. So now imagine if as that puck is going along in a straight line, uh, you're able to have it turn. Now it becomes virtually impossible to block. And like all the other attributes that we add to hypersonics, speed and maneuverability are key elements of what keeps them in a high survival mode. Yeah, when you're going that fast and you change the direction, the impacts that it can have on the, on the control, the aerodynamics of the vehicle are very significant. We, we tested, we built platforms, we learned, and those have all been incorporated into our hypersonic platform work today. So we believe that's an attribute that we have to, you have to cultivate and you have to work at having. You don't, you're not just naturally fast and it doesn't feel comfortable to move fast. Uh, and so you have to train yourself to do that and you have to practice it. The space shuttle, the X-15, these are things that have been going hypersonic for a long time. Will it happen for civil transport? Well, who knows? That's certainly possible. Is the world big enough for the speed that hypersonics provides? Maybe. We'll have to see. But hypersonics not only has happened, but it will happen. The exciting part is all the folks that are graduating now are going to be the ones that define it and create it. It's like UAVs were 10, 15, 20 years ago. We're at the cusp of that hypersonic attribute that people will get to be a part of now. Inside Skunkworks is produced in Palmdale, California, in Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for words of wisdom from Eric Knudsen. To read the full transcript of this episode, go to LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunkworks. So if I look back at some of our most successful engineers, and not all of them were engineers, some of them came from very different walks of life, it was important that they studied hard and learned all their core curriculum for their degrees. But equally important was to get a great diversity of experience. Make sure you understand beyond just the discipline that is your chosen uh, goal. Uh, if you're a propulsion guy, you're certainly going to want to pick up on aerodynamics, maybe some thermo. And whether you're staying to the traditional engineering uh, disciplines, you may also want to learn a little bit about uh, mission planning or operations analysis. And if you're going to be trying to create a new system, it'd be really good to understand how to build it, understand manufacturing and tooling, fabrication. If you've had the opportunity, 
to rebuild the engine of your car or motorcycle or what have you. If you've had the opportunity to build a computer at home, get those experiences because it's that diversity that's going to make you or differentiate you from everybody else and make you a skunk.